0: Mood Awakenings, Chapter 10, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. Nick and Achan have left Vaishali, walking south to the city of Patna on the River Ganges, once the capital of Ashoka's Indian Empire. A new map is attached to this chapter, covering the next part of the journey. It can be opened when using Podbean, Apple or Google Podcasts. But may not be available on some other apps.
1: Chapter
2: 10. The Treasure House. At Chen Suchito. Onward, to Hajipur. Hajipur! Hajipur! Some crazy man was jabbering at us, and I threw the words at him as a desperate offering. He wasn't the only one accosting us, of course. Ghajarahe! they asked. Hajipur! That dumbfounded them for a while. hindi wasn't that good, but probably the next question meant, Why on earth are you going to Hajipur? We just grinned. That's where the bridge over the Ganges began. Maybe. It couldn't quite get the maps to tally. Onward. Our path narrowed in the darkness as it wriggled between baked mud walls. The walls that defend the backyards of villagers' houses against thieves and wild animals. And still we crept onwards, feeling like fugitives because of those walls. Beyond there were evening oil lamps and smoky smells mingling with cooking and burning of cow dung. We were looking for somewhere to lie down in the darkness. Funny the details that stick. We both remember the cycads where we unrolled our bedding. How would you call them again, Nick? Cycads, Bunty. Cycads. A very primitive form of plant. Them, or something pretty like them, would have been around with the dinosaurs. Really? Cycads cycads. I think I was starting to crack up. Fixing all these details in my memory seemed important. It gave a brief mooring to an attention that is losing its customary bearings. Like my mother, in my last anxious visits before leaving England, her mind was deteriorating. What time is it? was her constant refrain, repeated every minute or two. Age is brutal at exposing our instinctive need to hold reality in a mesh of words. It doesn't matter, mum but it did to her. Each time would be carefully written down, relating to nothing but the need to keep track, Younger minds can put a little more flesh on the bones of our insecurity. They can go onward to the next memory.
1: Nick
0: Scott it was 48 kilometers to Patna from Fishali and we reckoned on getting there in time for the meal the next day. We walked south on a minor road heading for Hajipur. It was a pleasant enough road with little traffic and trees to shade us but we soon found it hard going. By the afternoon we were feeling as tired as when we reached Fishali. Our stop there had obviously done little to alleviate our run-down state. The fatigue gradually closed in, numbing the mind and reducing my awareness to little more than the road stretching ahead. We were now no longer trying to do the puja and meditation late in the afternoon, leaving it instead till after dark when we'd be alone. Every evening, about six, I start to yearn for a place to stop for the night but I was also plagued with this need for somewhere nice. I still had these associations from other walking trips of pleasant evenings by campfires, out in the wilds, finishing the day in time to enjoy sitting in meditation under the stars. So I'd start looking for this ideal campsite, which of course didn't exist. Ajahn Suchita wouldn't mind where we stopped, and just wanted to keep going. His response to adversity was always to plod on. Eventually it would get too dark to find anywhere in particular, and we'd end up stumbling into some mango grove or other, where we'd collapse, sort out our stuff, and then try to do the Pudra meditation. That night we'd walked around Hajipur on the Bund, and had gone as far as our old maps could take us and Asun Suchito accepted that we'd have to leave the next bit till the morning. I enjoyed ending the day with a salutation to our two small Buddhas, sitting on some rock or tree stump that Asun Suchito had found. It was the meditation that was painful. There'd be such cramp in my calves and the soles of my feet, and my mind would be so dull with fatigue that all I could do as a way of coping was to shuffle from one position to another. That evening, as usual, my meditation didn't last that long. The call of my sleeping bag, the one reliable, comfortable experience in the day, was too great. We were a bit apart, each under a different tree, and I quietly sank to the horizontal. Quietly, not so much to avoid disturbing Ajahn Sucito, who was still perfectly upright and unmoving in the lotus posture, as to hide the fact I was giving in so soon. The next morning we were up and away very early, intent on reaching Patna by mid-morning. We entered Hajipur as dawn was beginning. The inhabitants were just stirring, and the streets were empty of the commotion that would later fill them. Our intentions were frustrated, however, as we tried to find the right road out. Twice we asked, and twice we were assured we were going the right way, but I knew the road must be larger if it led to the only crossing of the Ganges for a hundred miles. This was a problem I knew well from my previous time in India. If you ask whether you are going the right way, they can so want to please that they say yes whether they know or not. Eventually we did find the right road, a bypass on the other side of town with big lorries thundering along it, the kind of long-distance lorries I used to hitchhike in India when I was 20 and nearly penniless. They were still the same model made to a 1960s Mercedes design by Tata, the big Bombay Engineering Corporation. Then I'd assumed they were Mercedes, and the Tata name on the back was an Indian-English goodbye. These were the lorries I'd learned to look for then when seeking a lift. They were bigger and more important looking, and on them the painted designs which cover all Indian lorries were always Sikh, with their spear symbol either side of the company name above the windscreen. The Sikhs seemed to run much of the big merchant business in India. That combined with their affinity for things mechanical, has allowed them to also corner the long-distance transport business. Those lorries were a great way to travel. Sitting with the crew of driver, co-driver and a boy who would be out at each stop cleaning the windscreen, we would thunder across India, stopping only for meals at Sikh transport cafes. The lorries didn't go that fast, just 50 miles per hour at the most, but they drive all day, and then all night, while I slept above the cab with one of the drivers on the two rope beds under the rocking stars. The lorries rumbled by as we made our way along a straight road, rising slowly to the bridge. The Indian government is proud of this bridge, which, to cope with the Ganges in full flood, is one of the longest in the world. We'd seen it mentioned as one of the highlights of Bihar in a tourist brochure. For us, though, it was the famous river that was important and we had decided to have a little ceremony to acknowledge the Ganges crossing. However, once we were on the bridge, it seemed to continue for ages with no sight of the river. Passing over miles of cultivated land that presumably became river during the monsoon. We were tired, and as we had been walking since early that morning without breakfast, we were also getting hungry and weak. But the bridge just went on and on and on, with us getting more and more tired. Finally sandbanks started to appear below us, and there at last was the Ganges, even bigger than the Gandak, and even more full of silt. Looking down from the bridge as we walked out over the river, I was watching men filling four sailing junks with river silt from the bank, carrying it in baskets on their heads as they walked up planks to tip it into the holds. I was wondering where it was going. I have since discovered to be made into bricks, when what I thought was an enormous fish surfaced, then it did it again, and a few more times, each time further down river. That woke me out of my stupor. To this day, I like to think it was a gangetic dolphin, partially because, although they are now so rare, it really might have been. It was behaving just like one, but just as much because they are such amazing creatures, that I'd like to have seen one. Living in the murk of a river so full of silt, they are nearly blind and rely on echolocation to find their way and the fish they eat. The silt also makes them difficult to see, which is why so little is known about them. Excited, I turned to Ajahn chito to point out my discovery. But he wasn't interested. All I got was a grunt. At Chensuchito
2: That interminable bridge Hey, here's the bridge already, chirped the mind. Patna's just over the other side. Nearly there What other side? For the first hour we didn't even get to the river. By the time the shimmering goddess appeared way below us, everything in me was dissolving and bobbing together, shaking legs, breath, mantra, driven onward by a flagging will. Mother Ganja was flowing effortlessly and timelessly east, west to east, the way in which the earth's turning creates our time. Boats rocked peacefully in her jewelled hands, not onward, But on, borne on the ceaseless tide. Staggering onward? Onward to what? But still, better not stop now. At least get halfway over. Then we'll have a rest. Halfway along that uncaring treadmill was the stop. We were midway between the banks. Stop. I rolled the delicious word around my mouth savouring it like water ice Get the bag off Sit down on the pavement beside the lane Here at the intersection of time with the timeless Buddha Puja We laid down mats set our Buddha images on the lower step of the parapet in front of us and offered incense to the awakened one offered it also to Mother Ganja and the eternal cycle, a vast interweaving mandala of mud and refuse and of a light so dazzling my eyes could hardly look at it. From her, people derived their livelihood and faith. It was the place of their spiritual purification, an open sewer and a graveyard. Ganja a goddess descending from Vishnu through Shiva's hair, was the span of life itself. No wonder she was hard to cross over. The few minutes of meditation were terminated by something thumping into me. It was Nick, scrambling to his feet. An ox-cart was bearing down on us, only a few feet away. Jai Ram, written on the side of the parapet, bobbed into focus again as we jumped onto the lower step. Clutching our bags, and a train of oxen trundled by, the driver clucking and whooping at his beasts, probably wondering where we had sprung up from. So, onward, more as fugitives than devotees, but onward. A white, onion shaped dome, bluish in the morning light and misty, shone from the other shore. That must be a Sikh temple. The mind chirped again. Rest. Hospitality. Food. Not far now. But the road marched on, and Ganja knowingly danced. Because, having crossed over the river, the bridge was in no hurry to merge into the maze of streets. It soared disdainfully over the rooftops that clung to Mother Ganja's sleeve, and continued heading south. We had to abandon it finding a blocked-off stairway winding down the side of one of its legs, we ignobly clawed over the barrier to climb down to the world below. The white dome had disappeared. We decided to stay in a Sikh temple or Gurudwara while in Patna. Religious places have seemed far more appropriate than cheap hotels. The word Dharamsal is in the city, but local people had repeatedly and emphatically warned us against using them. They were dirty and were full of thieves, and Patna was a lawless city. We should be very careful where we stayed. Sikh gurdwaras, however, have a reputation for hospitality, and Patna had the largest gurdwara outside of the Punjab. Nick's simple guide to the city indicated. Shri Harimandir Sahib, the main Gurudwara, somewhere off in the east. So there was another journey, more churning in the flow, buses, rickshaws jangling at one's heels, scooter taxis rasping like frenzied ducks, until, in a wall, way beyond the hope of getting anywhere, a gate lay open. Here was the Gurudwara the gateway of the Guru. It was an impressive place. Huge gates opened onto a vast plaza of polished white paving, surrounded by the stone walls and balconies and galleries of what must have been offices and lodgings. Onion-shaped fluted domes rose above the gateways in each wall of the square. The eye's attention, however, was rightly drawn to the centre, to the temple building itself, square and built in the Mughal style, with characteristic domes, and with windows, with balconies that looked out over the plaza. The Sikhs must be well organised. There was an order everywhere that seemed un-Indian. It was shocking to see a set of buildings so homogeneous and in good repair, with plenty of space in the square, no chaotic crowds, no dogs, cows or tea stalls. no rubbish, no strands of hunched bodies squatting over wares, no blaring Bollywood soundtracks. We stood for a while and took in the space. It looked like a good place to rest. Furthermore, the little chap by my elbow, looking up with shining eyes from his mass of beard and turban, Couldn't have been nicer. He wore the uniform of a guide and welcomed us in, presenting his card, Ram Ratan Singh, Temple Guide. We covered our heads with cloth and removed our sandals, as was expected, and explained our interest in the holy place and our wish to stay a couple of nights. He beamed and indicated the nearby reception, outside which he would wait while we booked in, and offered to show us around afterwards. The man inside was larger and less affirmative. He took us to the director, who was larger still and distinctly negative. No, foreigners are not allowed to stay. Back to Ram Ratan Singh, then back in again to witness a heated debate between David and Goliath. Nowadays Goliath wins. Well, we look around anyway with Ramratan Singh. He was muttering about the injustice and unseek like behaviour of the director all the way across the Plaza. But when we entered the temple, an interior like a mosque, but with a central shrine more like a Hindu temple. His stream flowed more lyrically. Dates, histories, names, We walked around the shrine, looking through its windows at memorabilia, old mundane objects that reverence had made sacred. Here, remnants of the Guru's clothing. Here, other objects I I can't remember now, all, all treasures of Sikhism. Our guide was filling the details of a picture I didn't have an outline of. You can drink some of this water. It is coming from the spring that Guru Gobind Singh drank from. Here, Guru Gobind Singh was born. Here was a picture of Guru Gobind Singh as a beatific child. And so on, up the white marble stairs, onto the next floor, and the next, reviewing the Sikh memory bank. More cases and pictures... Ghastly images of powerfully built, bearded prisoners—Sikhs, surely— being sawn apart by bald, scowling, and heavy-browed captors. Here, mighty-thighed, heroic Sikhs with grim ardour in their eyes, urging others on to battle and martyrdom. And then up another flight, wondering, What do Sikhs believe in, anyway? There is one god with many names. All men are brothers.' Amana Guest. And who was Guru Gobind Singh? For the Sikhs, there were ten great teachers or gurus, and Guru Gobind Singh was the tenth of them. He was born in Patna in 1666. The first guru was Guru Nanak, and all the sayings of the gurus, the poems and devotional songs were collected in the Sikh holy book the Adi Grant. That was the thing downstairs that we came back to, placed on a cushion with a canopy over it, and attended by immaculately dressed priests with long white fly-whisks. Horsehair, I supposed, in a mesmerized stupor that I hoped passed for reverence. My legs were going wobbly again. We hovered in silence for a while, consciousness flowing across the hallucinogenic pattern of white paving squares, a serene lake on which burly, turban devotees floated among soft white light and gold brocade. I needed to sit down and eat and made some suitable noises. Ram Ratan Singh took us to a cheap hotel across the road, muttering about the director. Nick was explaining that he would have liked to stay in a temple and absorb some of the religion. We were pilgrims. His companion was a monk, and a monk should stay in a holy place. The hotel manager, the new ear for Ram ratan Singh's tirade, waggled his head sympathetically. I got into the unmemorable little room and sat down. Nick had the energy to operate in terms of purpose. He determined to go off and do business like things, first of which was to get a bag full of takeaway snacks from the street and offer them to me. Then, with an, I'll be back later, he marched off to duty.
0: Nick Scott After our meal, I went off for the rest of the day in one of the three-wheeled taxis prevalent in all Indian cities. These ran a kind of bus route through the old part of town and then on to the centre of modern Patna. The taxis use a scooter as their basis, but have two wheels at the back supporting a compartment that could hold four small locals. The driver sat in a cab at the front on a seat designed for one but onto which two more passengers might squeeze on either side. That is where I preferred to travel, sitting on the edge of his seat, hanging slightly out of the cab and holding onto the frame just above my head. It doesn't sound that comfortable, but it was much better than trying to cram my big body into the back. I never had to wait. They were always coming towards me, winding their way through the traffic, the crowds, and past the occasional cow whenever I wanted one. Despite there being so many, they were always full by the time they reached the city centre. I went into New Patna to buy things we could only get in a city, like colour slide film, or the special small batteries for Ajahn Suchito's torch, and to collect our mail from the post office, and also to visit the bank. I made a point of seeking out the main branch of the State Bank of India, as I wanted not only to change travellers' cheques, but also to acknowledge the kind action of their bank manager, Mbetir. I'd written out a formal letter of commendation addressed to the bank's president. At the bank, the official in charge of foreign exchange already knew about Mr Mishra's action. He explained that he had recently been authorised to accept the cheque and to reimburse Mr Mishra. He took my letter solemnly assuring me that it would go to the President, and that it would be very much to Mr. Mishra's credit. And I left the bank, feeling I'd returned one good deed with another. It was from the bank that I began the quest which led, via a series of dingy government offices, to the Patna Zoological Gardens, and the small office of the Wildlife Division of the State Forestry Department. That proved a most enjoyable visit. For me the gardens were a treasure house as they had many of the species I might see as we crossed the forested hills of southern Bihar later on our walk. There was an enclosure with most of the native species of deer, great for learning to identify them. The list of names displayed on the fence gave no way of telling which was which but a passing janitor was able to help. Elsewhere there were tigers and leopards and an aviary with birds of prey and owls. It was a weekday and the better-off locals who'd visit the Sioux were in their offices. So I had many of the exhibits to myself and I never had to queue at the tea rooms, to which I returned several times for a new discovery. Wonderful chilled cartons of mango juice, called fruities. There was no one at the wildlife offices not unusual for Bihar state offices I'd already discovered so that I was able to wander around studying the big wall maps showing the forest areas and the distribution of different forest types and pictures of the wildlife. On my second visit two junior officials arrived. They were immediately enthusiastic about our plan to walk through the forested regions and gave me loads of useful advice. They knew personally all the forest officers in the sub-districts we were passing through, and threw in details about each. The field jobs went to junior officers like themselves, and they'd all been to college together. They told me the forest rest houses, which would be en route, and to which district forest office to write for permission to stay. The stay would only cost ten rupees a night, but I must first get a chitty signed by the district forest officer. Although both were trained as foresters, they were very keen on the wildlife. They warned me, though, that much of the forest we were going through was not in good repair, being so near the crowded Ganges Plain. They insisted we must also go to the south of Bihar, where there were big areas of unaffected forests. I promised we'd try, and to pass on their regards to their fellow junior officers when we met them. Then I wandered back through the zoological gardens to take one last look at some of the animals we might see in the wild. I was excited about the prospect and looked forward to the forests ahead.
2: My afternoon ritual was to unpack the bags, sort the stuff out, then write some memories in the diary. Such unpacking wafts perceptions into the mind. The Buddha Rupa from the Cambodia Trust. I placed it on the only high place, the ledge where the brick wall was capped by a wooden window frame and the ravages of Cambodia drifted to the surface. Here was the small stainless steel arms bowl that Jayasara had sent me from Thailand for the trip. Here the bag that the Bhikkhus at Amravati had sorted out with all kinds of straps and buckles with which to hold on my sleeping mat. Vajiro's sleeping bag. The belt pouch that Suviru had made for me. The shiny, stainless steel mug that a novice had given me. The sandals, revamped with old motorcycle tyres glued to the soles to sustain a thousand miles of walking, and the relics. Tiny crystals, fragments, and icons from shrines. Those revered crumbs to offer to the shrines at holy places, so that the aspirations of my fellow Summers would merge into this paying new homage. But the rubbish! There were no cupboards or shelves, so everything was awash on the floor. Rubbish and valuables distinguished only by emotional resonance. Here, next to the relics, a fragment of a Hindi newspaper that the snacks had come wrapped in. Here a crushed empty matchbox. Here the mangled stub of a candle. These kind of hotels never have waste paper baskets. You just throw the rubbish on the floor and someone sweeps it up every day or so, or when you leave. It's hard to throw things on the floor. The mind is so used to setting things apart. This is valuable. It goes here. This is rubbish. Throw it away. But here there is no throwing away because there is no away. In India, it's all here, all rubbish, all sacred. As with the perceptions and memories, what makes up a pilgrimage? What do you put in a diary? The gritty grey stone shower stall, with water that became available when no one else was using it. The two men wearing Nehru caps, slouched in armchairs behind newspapers in the foyer. Or between Vaishali and Hajipur, the traditional graffiti-like paintings on the sides of the houses. Or on the Bund, the huge Banyan trees, often with a simple shrine, a stone, a swash of red paint, a strand of dead flowers. Or some more momentary ripple, a white ox shaking its dripping muzzle at its feed, the light scattering through the drops of water, or the groan and clatter of a pump where we squatted to wash, or a small boy solemnly talking about Charles Dickens as he walked along with us, or the smoky sunsets that we lumbered through as people withdrew into huts and houses and women's voices murmured through the walls, Or the chilly evenings, two mats around a tree somewhere and a faltering puja to introduce us to the spangled night's darkness. So many wavelets of memory, so many fragments borne on the tide, on but not onward. When I caught some and put them in the diary, they became so much debris or rubbish or sacred. I doubted whether Nick's hundreds of photographs had done much better. You might as well try to net a river. But even a poor man has to have his treasures. Later in the afternoon, I returned to the Gurdwara. Ram Ratan Singh took me around his room, maybe two and a half by three metres of space, containing his smiling wife and four sparkling eyed children and a bed, a stove, a cupboard, and under the bed, a photograph album. Here was Ram with the President of India, also a Sikh. Here was Ram solemnly with other VIPs who stirred no memories in my mind. So I gave him one of the photos of Nick and myself, and one of the cards that someone had given me as a joke. Venerable Sujito Bhikkhu, in copperplate it read, and underneath it in small capitals, arms mendicant. He was pleased, and I was pleased. You realise you need this stuff in order to be able to make the invitations and the blessings, the gestures that count, and to see the richness. For him, what was unnoticeable, but which I carried away like a jewel, was the invitation into his life, and the perception that he was a family of six, cheerful and bright, yet living in one room, most of which was bare. In the evening I was with Nick in the white space of the Gurdwara. That place was generally throbbing with the evening kirtan. Two men, one on a harmonium and one playing tablas, singing verses from the Adi Granth. The tension of a scattering of human forms was held in its flow. Wrapped in so much cloth, the men and the women all looked huge, and their relaxed stillness gave them dignity. Nick, red-bearded, his head wrapped in a cloth, looked like a Sikh, albeit some cousin from Mars. And they all seemed easy, flowing along in the spirit, and in the verses of Kabir, Guru Nanak, Guru Angad, Guru Amar Das, Guru Ram Das, Guru Arjan. As with Buddhism, this spiritual outflow had started informally, not from a wish to create a new religion, but simply to purify and point to the truths and to the false grasping in current practices and ideas. Like Buddhism, the way of the Sikh Gurus had sprung from the mystic source of personal revelation that keeps bubbling up through the crust of Vedic Brahmanism, and from which religious forms get deposited like silt. Sometimes it's the conflict between religions that cracks the crust. In the first half of the 15th century, when Islam was establishing itself in northern India, Kabir, a Muslim by birth, took discipleship from a Hindu guru and saw beyond the form of established religion. There is nothing but water at the holy bathing places and I know that they are useless for I have bathed in them. The images are all lifeless. They cannot speak. I know for I have cried aloud to them. The Purana and the Quran are mere words lifting up the curtain. I have seen. Kabir gives utterance to the words of experience, and he knows very well that all other things are untrue. That was the beginning of the flow. A few years later, Nanak had a revelation while immersed in a river, and picked up the same theme, God is formless, not Muslim, not Hindu, and then wandered, singing it. Those who heard and took Nanak as their guru became his disciples, learners, or in the Punjabi language, Sikhs. For 500 years since, the sayings of Nanak and subsequent gurus, have been recited and venerated as the Sikh's contribution to India's treasury of teachings. But the next day we went in search of another kind of treasure. Jalan House was what we had come to see, a private museum that one could only enter with the permission of Mr. Jalan himself. And yesterday, the incomparable Dr. Scott had tracked him down to one of his jewellery stores. Yes, and if I am not there, my son will show you around. The son was fourteen years old, from St. Paul's School, Darjeeling, courteous and accomplished. And the house? Probably a hundred and something years old, struggling against the corrosive effects of nature and the Indian state. It had been fine under the British... But since independence, some of the collection had been grabbed by the state. Then there was tax and the cost of servants. It was hard to keep it all going. And surely there was a lot of stuff there to hold on to wonderful old instruments, sitars and tambura and vinods, coins from all ages, a sizable collection of Chinese porcelain and ivory, quan yins. Here, with a nonchalant wave of the hand, was the fine-tooled silver scabbard of Emperor Agbar's sword. Here, Napoleon III's bed. Here, George V's dining set, matching plates, bowls, saucers, and so on. Carved chess pieces, old manuscripts, the Prajnaparamita Sutra in Devanagari's script. Times, fragments. And really now there wasn't the time to see it all. Various daytime duties, school, work and so on were dawning. Outside the house we said goodbye. And we have an old daimler from before the war. But the servant lost the keys, so he can't get in it anymore. Slimy lanes seethed around the stump of the wealthy estate. They had deposited contemptuous mounds of refuse, human, animal and vegetable, against its grand, ageing walls. Patna was weary and under curfew. Too many deprived people in the city. Iodia was still simmering.
0: Nick Scott. The next day was to be our final one in Patna and we had set the afternoon aside for our planned visit to Patna museum and the attempt to see the Buddha's ashes. I had been all for trying earlier but my companion had insisted that we were to make just the one attempt. Ajahn Sucito approaches the material world with an expectation of disappointment. He rationalized that as we were unlikely to succeed we would be causing ourselves unnecessary suffering if we tried too much. I'd been for making a campaign of it. We travelled into New Patna crammed together in the back of a three-wheeled taxi and arrived at the museum. This was one of the grand Victorian buildings left by the Raj. They were all together on several wide tree-lined avenues that had once been the British part of Patna, but had since been colonised by India. Now there were stalls along the pavements, little tea shacks built around each of the trees, beggars propped up against the walls, the odd cow meandering down the road, and people bustling everywhere. But if you looked above this Indian sea, the frontage of the museum, rising out of it all, still looked imposing. Inside, however, it was obvious that the assimilation was taking hold there too. The stuffed animals in the large glass cases in the centre of the main hall had the occasional bit of fur falling out and the tiger was stalking through long grass bent and tattered with age. The collections of traditional weapons for some reason set amidst these animals were dusty and the tribal costumes on the wall were faded and slightly moth-eaten. We were directed past all this and the knots of people looking at the various exhibits, and made our way up some wide stone stairs, flanked by models of tribal people wearing more costumes, to the small office of the assistant curator in a back corner. He was a pleasant young chap, but although delighted to see us, he couldn't help. Regretfully, the curator is not here at present, and so it is not possible to see these ashes. I tried telling him how far we had come and how much we would like to see the ashes but all we got was sympathy and an invitation to tea. Over tea he told us about his university thesis on some aspect of Buddhist history and then after at least half an hour of such talk and without anyone coming into the room he suddenly announced the curator is now here and you may see him with your request with our hopes rekindled, we were taken next door into a larger room, and through that into another, where the curator, grey-haired and portly, sat behind a desk taking tea with two cronies. His two companions had the same unhurried air as the curator, one that goes with employment in the Indian government service, and the three appeared as if they'd been there all along. I repeated our request to see the Buddha's ashes. The curator listened politely, and then explained, First you must write a letter to me, outlining your request, and then it can be arranged. But this is our last day in Patna. To see the Buddha's ashes, I must first have a request in writing. Our hopes began to sink. But then I had an idea. Could we write the letter now, and give it to you? Of course. So the assistant curator took us into the room next door, brought us paper from his room, and we sat down to compose a formal letter of request, which Ajahn Suchita was concerned to get just right. It had to explain who we were and what we were doing and be written in the humble rhetoric of Victorian English that he felt the curator would like. It took a while, but eventually it was done, written out neatly with lots of flowery phrases. We were taken back and the curator received our crafted letter without even glancing at it. He just put it aside on his desk and announced, Now we can go to see the ashes. You are most fortunate. To see the ashes you must have two sets of keys. and For that you must have both myself and this man here. He indicated a uniformed employee who must have been called to the room in our absence. Our party then set sail behind the figurehead of the curator, who passed majestically through his museum. We went through the outer room and passed the assistant's room, then passed the stairs and various archaeological exhibits in glass cases, until we came to a distant storeroom. The uniformed assistant stepped forward to unlock the door, and we all entered. Inside was a dusty room full of cupboards and wide chests with long drawers. There was only one window, high up on the far wall, and from it a shaft of light slanted down into the room. The curator got his keys out, unlocked one of the cupboards, and lifted out an old, flat wooden box. The size and shape of a thick pencil box, which he unlocked with a small key. Inside the box, nestling in deep blue velvet, was a simple but delicate off-white soapstone casket, and beside that, an ordinary screw-top glass vial, like those used in hospitals. The vial was half-filled with grey ashes. The remains of the Buddha, He took it and the casket out and placed them on his hand for us to look at more closely. I asked him to raise his hand so that they were illuminated by the shaft of dusty sunlight. And then I took a photo. My heart was singing with delight and awe.
2: Everything was bright for that moment. Everything was still. Nothing was said. Nothing thought. The Buddha's ashes. His last words told in my mind. All conditioned processes are transient. Practice with diligence. But for a few precious moments, there was the light. That's all I needed to see. After the Buddha's ashes, who could be interested in looking at more remains? Apparently somewhere in Patna, various sites had been excavated to reveal its glorious past as the capital of the Mauryan Empire. But such things seemed irrelevant now. All conditioned processes are transient. And the deepest irony was that in India, the incarnate had lasted longer than the living sangha of the Buddha's heirs and the legacy of his teachings. Pointlessness descended. Here I am, a lone bhikkhu following a long dead history. Where am I going? Now my right foot asked for attention. The blisters had all gone, but the strap of my right sandal had chafed a saw on the upper surface of the foot. Before we set off for our trip to New Patna, I put a sticking plaster over it, but inadvertently created a slight tuck in the skin. In the course of the afternoon, the skin had torn open. You don't think the skin does that until you live in India, and opened into a saw about a centimetre across. No big problem. But I knew from past experience how slowly things heal in India. It requires a sustained effort to keep the flies out and a regular bombardment of medicines to prevent further infection. And this was a foot bound to get dirty and required to do a lot of duty in a hostile environment. Hence, I wound several layers of white cloth around it and suitably turbaned, returned to the gurdwara. In the cool of the following morning in that holy space, a renowned preacher was expounding the Adi Grant. As the preacher was blind, a priest would very beautifully intone a few verses from the sacred text, always about the same length, and as he completed his last phrase, the preacher began his commentary in less formal cadences, but also softly modulated and of equal length. Now, this was no talk. It was a dialogue, a few threads of the Sikh epic woven with the rhythm and harmony of a song, between the main theme of the priest's intonation and the counterpoint of the preacher's commentary. The congregation was rapt. When you have harmony and attention, Songs don't need music. For me, it was like witnessing two late-night jazz musicians soulfully exchanging phrases of one of those standards that reach back into a shared place of feeling. The audience was right there with them, sharing in the much-heard song of their people. Occasional smiles, keen attention. We've heard it before, but tell it like it is. Upstairs, above the flow, the vision was less convivial. Many of the exhibits came from the time of the conflict between the Sikhs and the Mughals in the 17th and 18th centuries. This conflict had moulded much of Sikhism, giving it its characteristic forms and identity, and through that formalisation had fixed it as a separate faith. Without the antagonism of the emperors, Sikhism would probably occupy the same position in the culture as Sufism does in Islam. Emperor Akbar, renowned for his religious tolerance and statesmanship, seemed genuinely to admire the Sikhs. During his reign, the Sikh Jerusalem and Ritzal was built, and some of the verses of Kabir and Nanak were collected as the forerunner of the Adi Grant. But fortunes changed with the emperors. Under Jahangir, Aurangzeb, the fifth guru, was executed, and consequently the guru's son, Guru Hargobind, started marshalling the Sikhs into a fighting force. Once they had become established as a political, military entity, further antagonism was inevitable, and continued through the reigns of Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb was probably you no know, crueler than any other emperor of the time, But he was more single-minded and long-lived than most. His personal determination to establish India as an Islamic state through the sword, as well as through his own prayers, fasting and veneration of the Quran, made life difficult if he didn't share his views. While Muslims regard him as a saint, in the annals of Sikhism he is a bigoted monster. It was during his reign that the tortures and persecutions of Sikhs began on a large scale. The ninth guru kept his dharma at the cost of his head. Martyrs throughout history will testify that there's nothing like receiving a hammering to give your cause some shape. The ninth guru's son was a warrior. The ultimate test of truth is to die fighting for it. However, Guru Gobind was not only a warrior, but also the author of much of the outward form of Sikhism. In 1699 he established the fraternity of the Khalsa, an orthodoxy of followers identified by always wearing uncut hair, a comb, military-style underpants, a steel bangle and a dagger. And significantly, Guru Gobind proclaimed that the true Sikhs of the Khalsa should subsequently carry the surname Singh, meaning lion. Guru Gobind Singh is therefore held in reverence by Sikhs second only to Guru Nanak. He is typified as a hero of true Hindu culture in the face of Muslim intolerance, an heir of Lord Ram even. He lost his four sons, two walled up alive, two in battle, and a wife in the struggle for Dharma, and was finally assassinated, leaving the holy book, the Adi Grant or Sri Guru Granth Sahib, as the next and lasting Guru. So that sealed things off a book, however sacred, has no way of developing. Sikhism since has retained its identity through emphatic reruns of the warrior saint theme. The saintly aspects are the rejection of caste distinction, the refusal to steal, lie, or take alcohols or drugs, and the avoidance of sex outside of marriage. But what gets remembered are all the heroic struggles against an oppressive majority. As the power of the Mughals declined, the Sikhs fought against the British, and then, having been defeated but favoured by the British, fought for them against the sepoys in the Indian mutiny. Separated from Muslims and Hindus alike, they have been fighting over the Punjab since it was divided by partition, fighting against rival factions in their own group, and fighting against the Hindu rulers of the Republic. Memories are still fresh of the armed Sikh occupation of the Golden Temple at Anritsar and of terrorist activities in the early 1980s. The siege and the army attacks on the Temple. The assassination of Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards and the subsequent rioting and murder of Sikhs by Hindus. Memories. The hypnosis of history fixing the future into the pattern of the past. Opening into the present is the only sane ground. Fittingly, the last scene in Patna was back on that lake-like ground floor of the Gurdwara, where Ram Ratan Singh met us and steered us into the dining hall for the Langar, the communal meal that is one of the oldest Sikh traditions. Roti and dal were served to all, and we sat on the floor in the sacred fraternity of eating, a sangha of sorts, through the gateway at last. Now it was a suitable time for leaving. We were heading for Nalanda, not directly the way of the main road, but via a road heading south, towards Beer. Nick felt that if we headed down that road, he could find a way of cutting across country that would make the walk more pleasant. Ram was delighted. His cousin lived somewhere down that road at a place called Baldarichak. He wrote a note to his cousin, gave it to Nick, and walked along with us for a way. We left him in a Sikh jewellery store owned by one of the elders of the temple committee, campaigning again about the lack of hospitality shown to us. Jai Ram By the side of the road towards sunset, Another puja. Afterwards I noticed how pleasant it was to be sitting in a field, carefully using a needle to get a splinter out of Nick's foot. It seemed like one of the more sacred acts that i had undertaken in the last month. After dark, the walking was still flowing on, some fellow driving a tractor stopped and jabbered at us excitedly. Same old stuff about danger and bandits. Baldarichak, we threw at him, half crazy with walking, and went on. Baldarichak the beautiful. City of our dreams, we joked. Baldarichak. Who went to Baldarichak? Nalanda, Rajgir, and Bodegaya, More dreams, destined to become memories. Yet I plodded along, one foot shrouded in bandages and carrying a few less ideas. All right to be stupidly plodding in stupid Bihar. Was this the way to follow the Buddha? Who knows?